Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Keller, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, it's nice to see you again. You're looking great. How have you been? Pretty good. So far, so good. No complaints. Follow, following along with the developments, I'm sure that you've been uh, keeping up to uh, date on it. And um, You like the Paul Landis stuff? Come on now. Well, the Paul Landis stuff is really... Uh, Oh, let me click this. Okay, here we go. Yeah, the Paul Landis thing is extremely important. And uh, Land what Landis had to say uh, blows the um, single bullet theory right out of the water. If we can rely on everything that he said, because if that bullet was not found on Connolly's stretcher, but was in the back of the car, uh, that means that it didn't go through both Kennedy and Connolly. And the problem that the Warren Commission faced from the beginning was that it would appear then that Connolly and Kennedy were hit by separate shots. And since they were, according to the Zapruder film, less than one half second apart, there's no way Oswald could have done it. So you had to have another shooter. So Landis really opens the door here. And, and basically, if you were... Um, you know, in my book, I did a chapter on the medical evidence. And I uh, covered a section in there called the stretcher puzzle. Because I went back and I read the testimony and I condensed the testimony of every single person who handled the stretcher that Governor Connolly was on. Every single one of them said there was no bullet on the stretcher. No bullet fell out of his clothing when they took his clothing off. When they packed up his clothing, no bullet fell out. They said that the uh, stretcher that was used for Connolly was totally clean, that they had removed everything off it. Nothing was left on it. And the stretcher that Kennedy was on, his body remained on that stretcher until he was... Uh, closed up in a body bag and then placed into a uh, temporary coffin for transport back to Washington, D.C. So the bullet didn't fall off a Kennedy stretcher. And if it didn't fall off a Connolly stretcher, which all the evidence prior to Landis's book, if you read all the eyewitness testimony of the people that handled Governor Connolly, there was no bullet on that stretcher. So I think what Landis has to say is right on the money. And the Warren Commission, the, the, the theory of the single bullet theory is just totally blown out of the water. I think it was blown out of the water when it was created. But I, I think uh, a lot of people in the research community on either both sides that believe are Warren Commission patriots and then also conspiracy theorists that believe that there's not just Oswald, they all reject Paul Landis, his whole thing nobody buys paul landis's uh claims you know look they're going to do that i mean they, they, you know they're going to stick with the original version you know they've got a lot vested in it and look i i even even without landis if you go back and you look and you get an opportunity you can look at my book in i go through every single individual and their testimony there was no way that that bullet was on governor Connolly's stretcher and so the, the, the question comes down to where did it come from? Okay, so may it may have come from another stretcher that was there. Maybe it inadvertently got mixed up on another stretcher. 
there was a young boy, Fuller was his name, that was brought in and was treated right after Kennedy and Connolly. And um, the nurses that treated him used a gurney, or I should say a stretcher, that was left in the hallway. And the one where this bullet supposedly fell off of had a lot of rubber gloves, a stethoscope, and other medical paraphernalia, which kind of fits that it looks like that bullet could have rolled off the stretcher that Fuller was using. Certainly, it didn't come from Connolly's stretcher. That we can, wherever it came from, it didn't come from Connolly's stretcher. So that evidence supports everything that Paul Landis has to say. And we knew about that years ago from the testimony taken by the Warren Commission. What about the Secret Service cleaning out the limo at Parkland Hospital? Well, you know, that just that just speaks to the um, incompetence of the Secret Service. I mean, here they are washing out the back of the car with a pail of water and a scrub brush. I mean, they're destroying blood splatter evidence that was in the back of the car that could have told us a lot about the direction of the shots. Here they're, here they're out there cleaning this out. I mean, you have to wonder. I, I don't know that I can attach any, you know, um, negative connotations for them doing it. You know, I don't I don't think that they were involved in cover up. I think these guys were just so shocked they wanted to clean this limousine up. You know, I mean, basically, the limousine, the back of the limousine was a recognition with the blood splattered everywhere that they had totally failed in their job to protect the president. So I, I can understand them maybe going out there and wanted to wipe out the evidence of this. But when they did that, they wiped out very important blood splatter evidence. It was just pure incompetence. They had bullet fragments and skull pieces that they were picking out of that back seat that that was put in a bucket and never submitted into evidence. Look, the Harper fragment, which was found on the uh, medium on the other side of, um, of the limousine when it was blown to the left side of the limousine, basically that's missing. That's not even in the National Archives. One has to wonder where did that disappear to, along with the tissue slides. And we also know uh, one of the first, the, the first person to actually get permission from the Kennedy family to go in and examine the autopsy materials was Dr. Cyril Weck. And the first thing that Dr. Weck found when he went in was that the president's brain was missing. I mean, there was no way to even section the brain to find out how the bullet traveled through his brain. That information was not done at Parkland, and there was no way to do it. You know, uh, once Weck got in there and found out the president's brain is missing, the, the, the tissue slides are missing, the Harper fragment is missing. Uh, it, it's a travesty. It's just incredible. What are your thoughts on Dr. James Hume's burning his notes? Well, I think Hughes was... Um, Hughes was under a lot of pressure to not get too deeply involved in this autopsy. It appears that, you know, he was receiving orders during the entire autopsy from military personnel in the room. And uh, for whatever reason, I mean, I can't give you a reason why he was he was under those instructions. But I think that maybe he he recognized that. Um, they had some real problems in the original autopsy notes that they took 
because they later on found out that what what they thought was a uh, uh, a, a tracheotomy, uh, I should say, a potential bullet wound in the back, might have resulted from uh, the fact that it could have been hit in the throat. I think they had a lot of problems with these autopsy notes, and I think that Humes destroyed it uh, in order to cover some of the errors that they made during the autopsy. You have to keep in mind, this is a guy who later on admits to the House Select Committee on Assassinations that he got the location of the back wound wrong by four inches. Well, Gerald Ford moved and edited the report and moved the back wound up from the back to the back of the neck by six inches. That, and he said it was just a, a convenient way of trying to make it uh, understandable. Yeah, there's, okay? a, there's a lot of stuff like that too, which is like even with the original doctors that who put the trach tube in that little mark in the throat, he said it was a clean access. There was already a hole there, so it made more sense to go through there, which is strange, but they did, never accounted for this when the back wound when they were examining him. And, you know, Hume stuck his finger in one of the holes as well, too, and someone told him not to do that. Like, there's a lot. So there's a lot. Obviously, this book has lasted 60 years, as much as everybody's picked it apart and shown that it's kind of complete trash. The report is different from the volumes. When you start examining the volumes, they kind of count contradict what the report states so when you're examining and i wanted to dissect and actually get into your book a little bit because i don't think we talked too much about it but there's a, a lot of anomalies that happen in dealey plaza that day and i wanted to get your thoughts because you, we were talking about parkland did you ever read the testimony of bertha lozano no i don't think i did she was some guy randomly came in secret service agent said that someone was shot in Dealey Plaza. And that's why if you look up pool of blood in Dealey Plaza, there's just a random blood and they called it red soda pop. But there's accounts of people saying that it was blood. It was blood. It was pictures of blood. And it's like, I don't know if I'm at this point now in the case where I'm just I've come across so much. that I'm now diving into more of like the fringe or the things that have unexplainable things. It's like Buddy Walters finding a bullet, which I do believe he found in the grass and a random Secret Service or unidentified agent put it in his pocket and walked away. And Jim Murray has photographs of it. That's right. And they also they also had photographs of the um, Nash Rambler coming down the street while Buddy Walters was out in the street. Uh, and allegedly. Uh, an individual looking like Oswald got into that Nash Rambler. And there were several other people behind that, that car that also testified the person getting into the car looked like Oswald. So there's a lot of anomalies that took place in Dealey Plaza. And uh, you're, you're, you're pointing out a, a couple of good ones here. Now, I have to ask you, because you have this in your book, a shot from the grassy knoll, that is one of these questions and one of these statements that have been kind of back and forth brought up and it usually comes up i saw it again when the anniversary came up uh, people talking about a shot from the front i think a lot of people believe shot from the front i think the limousine even if we had you know more evidence or someone did an investigation on it you probably would have a lot of witnesses that talk about being able to stick a pencil through the hole in the windshield but what are your thoughts on the shot from the grassy knoll well, basically, you've got 64 witnesses who testified that a shot came from the knoll. And, um, you know, you've got um, a, an additional number of people who basically, let me let me just get the numbers here for you. You've got people who um, said that they saw smoke from the knoll. People who said they smelled 
gunpowder in the area of the Knoll. People who said uh, 13 agents, 13 people testified that they heard different gunfire sounds. Seven of those were police officers and Secret Service agents. So there's a lot of testimony out there that indicates that a shot clearly came from the front. And I, I did a, um, an analysis of where those shots came from, a chi-square test that shows it doesn't really make any difference as to where you were standing. A shot from the knoll would be heard as a shot from the knoll. And there are also additional um, tests that were done by the House Select Committee on Assassination, psychoacoustic tests, where they had psychoacoustic experts in Dealey Plaza. And when they fired these test shots, they said there was absolutely no doubt about the fact that a shot fired from the knoll was clearly heard as a shot from the knoll. There was no reverberations, no echoes, no bouncing off of buildings. It was clearly heard from the knoll. And then, of course, you've got the, um, the acoustics evidence, the acoustic recordings, the analysis by BBN and Dr. James Bargain that shows five shots fired in Dealey Plaza. So I think that the, and um, it, it indicates that the, um, you know, on, on the third shot, one of the things that they found when they studied the echo patterns from the shots that were recorded, they found a diminishment of the echo patterns on shot number three. And they realized that this would be caused by the windshield blocking the sound of the shot coming from the knoll. So they went to the New York City Police Department and they had them do an experiment to see if the shots would be diminished when the windshield was facing the direction of the shots. The results came back, matched exactly what BBN found, that Dr. Barber found on those uh, tapes. A shot in the knoll would be diminished because of the windshield on the motorcycle, which actually helps to placed the motorcycle at precisely the point where a shot was fired from the knoll. So I think when you take a look at the eyewitness testimony, smoke from the knoll, uh, gunpowder, look, Oswald is supposedly six feet, six stories up, uh, roughly 100 feet in the air. The smell of gunpowder does not drift down. Smoke goes up, not down. So all these people testified that they could smell the gunpowder right in the direction of the grassy knoll. You see smoke from the knoll. You've got different gunfire sounds, meaning potentially different weapons were used. And of the 13 people that said different gunfire sounds, seven of them were law enforcement people. Of that seven, six of them were Secret Service agents. Now, these people are used to working with firearms and hearing firearms discharged, you've got to put some credence in what they had to say. Then they add in the crowd reaction, right? Everybody runs to the no. The police officers riding to the left rear of the limousine, one of the officers is hit so hard by blood and blood and bone fragments from Kennedy's head that he said he initially thought that he was shot. All that debris was driven to the left rear of the limousine. Look at the president's body motion to the left and to the rear. So all of it adds up to a shot from the left. And of course, there's one very interesting thing. If you look at the uh, 
death stare picture of Kennedy. There appears to be a wound right here in his right temple. And it's possible that that was an entry wound from the front. And if you go back, Malcolm Kilduff, who was the press spokesman that particular day, when he was interviewed right after the president's death was announced, when he held an interview for the press, he was asked, where was the president hit? And he went, right temple, right here. This is Malcolm Kilduff. So I think there's a huge amount of evidence that he was struck in the front. The, the acoustic evidence, I'm sold on. I don't care what the, uh, what the criticisms of it are. When you study the data from the acoustic evidence and you look at the order in the data, I mean, there is no random behavior in this data. There is no bad data to indicate, you know, crazy results. It's all solid results when you look and examine exactly what BBN did. As a matter of fact, when they matched the echo patterns on the tape to the gunshots that they fired in Dealey Plaza, the echo patterns generated by them, the shots matched up perfectly. Shot one matched shot one, shot two matched shot two, all the way down the line. It wasn't some random result like, you know, the first shot that they did in Dealey Plaza match the fifth shot on the tape, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or the second shot matched the fourth. Didn't work that way at all. Shot one match shot one, two match two. I mean, the likelihood that statistically something would work out that well is exceptionally small. And so um, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that there was a shot in the front. Do you believe the history books should be looking more at the HSCA's investigation over the Warren Commission's investigation? The HSCA's I, investigation. I think, I think. I think anybody that has to look at the uh, history of the assassination has to look at the shoddy work of the Warren Commission. They came out with a theory after they, and that's exactly what what their analysis was when they said. Oswald acted alone. That's a theory. Now you've got to go and look at the facts that back up the theory. Okay. And when you do that, what you find is one anomaly after another. And when anomalies build up, the theory breaks down. And that's exactly what happened with the Warren Commission. You know, if you, uh, you know, we can just take a, a look at a, some of the things very quickly. Look, first of all, they stacked the deck. They made it impossible for anybody to bring in any different viewpoint or to challenge what they were doing. Did Oswald have any representation at the Warren Commission? They refused to give him any representation, even though his mother and his family requested that he have representation. That's stacking the deck. You don't you 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 prevent anybody from bringing up any contrary evidence. Go ahead. What they did at that point was he, he there's video footage of it. He requested for an attorney. He asked for legal counsel multiple times. It's on video. They had one person from the ACLU go down there, but that guy was friends with like Captain Fritz. And the issue with this is that 
in my opinion, I don't think this is a Warren Commission thing. I think this is more of a Dallas police thing. They arrested a guy. Look at their conviction rates. Half of those conviction rates from Henry Wade got turned over. Some people that were sent to the chair. So I think they really cared about their conviction rates. They got a guy for killing a cop. They were going to charge him for killing the president. They couldn't just let this guy go free and be a mistake. They really cared about their conviction rates. But they also waited for Marina and the family to talk to him until Saturday. What lawyer's office is going to be open on a Saturday? You know, it's it, it, you start to see where everything like the evidence, the paper bag that came out, that bag was made too short. It was fabricated the day that they found it on the day after Oswald allegedly shot. It was it, I mean, there's so much to it where you can see Dallas police is definitely fabricating evidence. But look at the Warren Commission interviews. How many of those members sat in on those Warren Commission interviews? How many people did they interview? If you look, all those people were all in the motorcade and then there were people that weren't even there. Family members, Marina Oswald wasn't in Dealey Plaza when the shots rang out. Why is she a reliable witness to talk to? Ruth Payne wasn't there either. Why is she on the list? Jack Ruby, uh, brother, sister, whatever. There's people that weren't in Dealey Plaza that the Warren Commission interviewed using that as evidence as like, oh, these are witnesses that we, no, those aren't witnesses to anything, but uh, the events that followed after. Well, look, take a look at what they, one of the things that they said, there is no credible evidence of a shot anywhere else in Dealey Plaza other than coming from the Texas School Book Depository, right? 64 witnesses said a shot came from the knoll. Now, they only called a handful, a few of them. They didn't bother to, to check with all of the other witnesses who said a shot came from the knoll. You know, when you go to the Warren Commission report, LBJ, ordered the FBI to do an investigation of the murder of President Kennedy. And they issued a five-volume report, which they turned over to President Johnson. That's not in the Warren Commission report. They also, as an example, there was a Dr. Joseph Dolce is his name. Dolce was the Army's wound ballistic expert at uh, one of their major installations. And he examined whether CE-399 could have gone through two people and come out without any defamation, like the CE-399. And they fired shots into cadavers, into their wrists. Every single one of the bullets was deformed. Warren Commission left that report out. They didn't use it at all. Left it out completely because it contradicted what they were saying. The CIA did an analysis of the Zapruder film and concluded that there was more than one shooter. That was left out of the Warren Commission report. So everything that, whenever you go through this Warren Commission report, one of the things that you consistently find is that any time there's a potential of a conspiracy, the Warren Commission completely avoids it. They go in the opposite direction. Look, take a look at the, the argument about Ruby when he killed Oswald. How did he get into the police station? Warren Commission said he walked down the ramp. Okay. Well, whose word did they take for the fact that Ruby walked down the ramp? Who were the witnesses who supported that theory? The only person was Jack Ruby. 
they took Ruby's word. Now, if you go back to the scene, you're going to find that in the basement, there were over 50 Dallas police officers and reserve officers. Most of them, about 60, 70% of them, 60 or 70% of them knew Jack Ruby. Not one police officer saw Ruby come down the ramp. Not one newsman was able to identify Ruby as coming down the ramp. The only witness, and a fellow by the name of Daniels, who was fired by the Dallas Police Department, who claimed that Ruby came down the ramp, later on failed a lie detector test to that regarding that ramp entrance. Okay. So they had no witnesses. The only witness was Jack Ruby. Now, let's go on a little bit further. Across the street was a cab driver by the name of Harry Tasker, T-A-S-K-E-R. At that time, Tasker was hired by one of the news media outlets to run film to the airport so it could be shipped back to the East Coast to be on TV. They didn't have the electronic means of sending it back in those days, so it had to be flown. So Tasker was parked right across the street from the entrance to the uh, uh, to, the, to the ramp going down into the basement of the Dallas police headquarters. He said nobody ever went down the ramp. The HSCA, several years later, found out that a Sergeant Don Flush from the Dallas Police Department was parked across the street. He had come in that day to watch the transfer, and he watched the ramp the entire time. He personally knew Jack Ruby. He said Ruby never walked down Main Street, never went down the ramp. The police officer guarding the ramp, Roy Vaughn, said Ruby did not go down the ramp. He passed the lie detector test. Three police officers driving up the ramp, a Lieutenant Pierce, two sergeants, Maxie and Put Putnam, testified Ruby could not have come down the ramp. Now, when I was in Dallas, at the time I went to Dallas, I went to the uh, police station and I went to that ramp and I had a Buick Park Avenue at the time. And I drove onto this ramp. It was so narrow, you couldn't open the doors of the car fully. It would bang into the walls on both sides. You would have a hard, hell of a hard time getting out of the car on the ramp. Nobody could have walked down that ramp with a car coming out or with a police officer standing in there. So all the witnesses that were there clearly stated Ruby did not go down the ramp. But who did the Warren Commission believe? Jack Ruby said he went down the ramp. House Select Committee on Assassinations later on found another entrance that they think Ruby got in to the basement through. But in order to get in, he would have had to have had help. So even that even that whole episode, you know, and if you go back and you take Jack Ruby and, um, you know, Ruby claimed that he didn't come to the uh, press briefing on Friday night at the Dallas police station until approximately 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Well, on Friday night, there were seven reporters and police officers 
who all testified they saw Oswald in the Dallas police station. Ferdinand Kaufman, an AP reporter, reported seeing him there between 4 o'clock and 4.30. That's not 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Victor Robinson, a WFFA reporter, saw him there between 5 and 6. Ronald Jenkins, K-Box reporter, saw him there between 5.30 and 7.30. Two Dallas police officers, Eberhardt and Standifer, both of whom knew Ruby, got him out of a room where he was going into where they were questioning Oswald. He was stalking Oswald on Friday night. Seven witnesses testified to seeing Ruby there long before 11 o'clock Friday night, from the afternoon on. What did the Warren Commission say? Oh, all these witnesses were mistaken. Jack Ruby said he didn't get there till 11 o'clock at night. Saturday, the same thing went on. On Saturday, uh, just to give you a quick count, two, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about 14 witnesses all testified to seeing Ruby at the Dallas police station on Saturday, casing the place, trying to locate Oswald, and at other locations where Oswald was going to be transferred. Some of them were Dallas police officers who knew him personally. What did the Warren Commission say about those 14 witnesses on uh, Saturday? They're all mistaken. Jack Ruby said he wasn't there. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. So when you go through the entire report, these are the kind of cover-ups that you consistently find. And so you have to say to yourself, every time that there's a conspiracy, a conspiratorial type of development, the Warren Commission totally covered it up or avoided it. And let me give you a, a great example. There was a Dallas police officer by the name of Charles Brown signed an affidavit that on, on, the, on the afternoon, Saturday afternoon, he saw Ruby trying to find an entrance into the basement of the Dallas police headquarters. Okay, they had all this information. And so they completely ignored it. And so all these anomalies ultimately break down. That's why this report is so criticized. And um, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to you if you want to pursue it. Yeah. Do you, do you think that Jack Ruby had Dallas police connections? You, it it kind of sounded like you made it seem like he was sneaking in there under not, or the Dallas police not knowing that he was going in there, but he had clear Dallas police connections. They hung out at his carousel club. He bought him drinks and everything like that. Hell, what what's his name? Hold on, hold on. Detective Cody is the guy who sprained his ankle while ice skating with Jack Ruby. But Jesse Curry's the one that stated that none of the police officers knew Jack Ruby, but they all stated knowing Jack Ruby in some type of way, whether it was a formal way of just popping in in his club. But there's also statements that Ruby did buy them drinks. He did a bunch. He called himself a police buff. In the back of my book, in Appendix 4-1, I list 34 police officers of the 50-some-odd who were in the basement guarding Oswald on the day he was to be transferred, who stated in their Warren Commission testimony they knew Jack Ruby. 34 of the 50-some-odd officers in the basement knew Ruby. And on Appendix 
I list 45 other Dallas police officers who also stated in their Warren Commission testimony that they knew Jack Ruby. And for all those buffs that may be out there, I list the actual citation where their testimony appears in the Warren Commission report. I documented everything in this book. As a matter of fact, my book has approximately, not approximately, it has 1,664 endnotes. Okay, so there's a number of appendices in there that detail all this information. He knew a lot of people on the Dallas Police Department, and those were only the police officers that I could find. And I'm sure that he knew more than 84 Dallas police officers. So that, that evidence is clear. Do you think a lot of this is Dallas police corruption that's involved in the case as well, too? Well, I mean, you know, you you, you know, th there's one guy that that really that really uh, drew my attention, and I'm sure you know the name, Don't Sergeant Patrick Dean. Oh, I thought you were say Tippett. I was like, damn, that grabs everybody's oh, attention well, at some Tippett's point. Tippett's a whole Tippett's a whole other story, but um, which we can talk about if you like. But Sergeant Dean, this I found to be extraordinary. Sergeant Dean was at almost everything that you can think of, that major event that happened that weekend. He was there when Oswald was killed. Um, he, uh, was one of, he was up there, one of the first people up there questioning Jack Ruby uh, after Ruby was arrested. Uh, he was in charge of basement security making sure that nobody was able to get in from the basement uh, into um, the downstairs area when Oswald was being transferred. Now, Dean was a very interesting guy. He knew the, um, he had dined on a number of occasions with the mob boss in Dallas, Joe Savello, Joseph Savello. And uh, Savello, uh, was arrested along with, the, with this this big raid on the mafia back in Appalachia in New York. Oh, in 1957. Yeah, he was arrested. He was representing Carlos Marcello. Dean was pals with this guy, okay, and had dined with him on a number of occasions. Now, as it turned out, Dean went up, and he was there when he was asked by Jesse Curry, the Dallas police chief, to uh, go up and meet with uh, Agent Sorrells, bring Sorrells up to uh, Oswald's, uh, where he was being held on the fifth floor for questioning. Now, as it turns out, Dean had absolutely no reason to be in the Dallas police headquarters that day. He was a guy that was out in the field. And when he was asked by the Warren Commission attorney, Bert Griffin, why were you in the police station? He says, well... I uh, thought they would need me that day, so I assigned myself there. He was not assigned there at all by any any superior officer. He just took it on himself to be there. So now he goes up and he's questioning. He's in the questioning with Agent Sorrell when he's asking Ruby questions. And Sorrell said he never asked Ruby how he got in. Dean claimed that Ruby told Sorrell he came in by the ramp. Sorrells said, 
Ruby never said any such thing. As a matter of fact, Ruby refused for a number of days after he was arrested to say how he got into the Dallas police station. And Dean claimed that Ruby made that statement when Sorrells was questioning him. As a matter of fact, Ruby's trial, his conviction, which was overturned, and a new trial was ordered for Jack Ruby, was overturned because of the problem with Patrick Dean's testimony in court. It was the major reason why the, the, the trial was overturned. Now, Dean was being questioned by Bert Griffin, the Warren Commission attorney, and Leon um, uh, Hubert, Leon Uris, uh, I believe, it is. I have to look up his name. But it was Bert Griffin was questioning Dean. And he felt that Dean was not telling the truth. So he stopped the questioning, asked the um, secretary to leave the room, and he told Dean, I don't think you're being truthful. And I think you should get an attorney. Well, Dean files a complaint about this with Henry Wade and then files a complaint with the Warren Commission. And what do you think when Dean appears before the Warren Commission, what do you think the Chief Justice of the United States does? He apologizes to Dean that one of the Warren Commission members, the attorneys, questioned Patrick Dean's testimony, that he might not be telling the truth. Isn't that what the commission was supposed to be doing? Isn't that what the attorneys were supposed to be doing, trying to get the truth? And wouldn't, if they had a witness who they felt was not telling the truth, shouldn't they have tried to uncover what this witness was withholding or lying about or misrepresenting? Warren apologizes to this guy. It's absolutely incredible. And so um, that's another cover-up. You know, Dean basically was another avenue that there might have been somebody who helped Ruby get into that basement. Warren was covering it up because they wanted to take Jack Ruby's testimony that he walked down the ramp. And they had absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support that. And later on, after that testimony and apology from Warren, Dean was given a lie detector test by the Dallas Police Department. Guess what happened? He failed the lie detector test. But the Warren Commission was never informed that he failed the lie detector test. I mean, so as you go through the as you go through this thing. You, you, you see time after time where the Warren Commission ignored or overlooked or excused evidence that might, that might point to the involvement of more than one person. So go to the Parkland Hospital situation with Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby allegedly was at Parkland Hospital when Kennedy was in trauma room one. He was seen at Parkland Hospital by a Dallas reporter by the name of Seth Cantor. Seth Cantor knew Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby had even given Seth Cantor 
a number of stories that Seth Cantor was able to write about and publish in the newspaper that he was working for. He definitely knew Jack Ruby. Well, Seth Cantor is also a White House correspondent reporter. So, I mean, he saw Ruby in the basement and Ruby had tugged on his shirt and asked him a question. Yeah, and he was, and he was, he said, Ruby was at Parkland Hospital. What did the Warren Commission say? Seth Cantor was mistaken. He saw him later that night. Now, also there was a young, not a young lady, but she was a married lady by the name of Wilma May Tice, T-I-C-E. Yeah. yeah. Wilma May Tice was black, and she was not well treated by the Warren Commission. And her husband warned her, don't get involved with this. But she said, I'm going to go down there and testify. I saw this guy, Ruby, at Parkland Hospital. So she was testifying. And the Warren Commission attorney got her to admit, yes, I could be mistaken that it was Jack Ruby. Now, most of the supporters of the Warren Commission stop right there. They don't go any further. But if you read the next line from Wilma May Tice, this is what she said. But if I'm mistaken, it was Ruby's twin brother. So you've got these two people, and both in Warren Commission again. There's some conspiratorial aspects of the fact that Ruby might have been at the hospital. Once again, you've got to steer clear of that, and you kill it. You say the witnesses were mistaken. All those press people that testified, they saw him stalking Oswald. 21 witnesses, they were all mistaken, according to the Warren Commission. I mean, what are the odds of that? So that's one of the reasons why I think when you go through this Warren Commission report, you know, as an example, uh, when you talk about Ruby again, Tippett and, and, uh, and Ruby and, and Oswald, well, there's no connection between Tippett and Oswald. Well, that's not quite true. They both shopped in the same places, the top 10 record store. They shopped in a couple of other places, but there was a small cafe located near the house where Oswald was staying, the rooming house where he was staying, the Dobbs House Cafe. Two days before the assassination, Who's sitting at the counter having breakfast? On one side is Tippett. On the other side is Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald made a big fuss when he was in there. He didn't like the way his coffee was, didn't like the way his eggs were, and Tippett was watching this the whole time. That could have been a simple way to introduce Oswald to Tippett without anybody ever talking to anybody. Okay, They were seen in the Dobbs House Cafe. Two witnesses, the two waitresses who worked in there testified both of them were in there. And that Tippett ate in there on any number of occasions. You know who else ate there? Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby used to come in. If there were Dallas police officers in the dog's house, he would pick up the check for all of them. So there are all these linkages that put these folks in proximity to one another. But yet, what does the Warren Commission say? There was no links between Tippett and Oswald. They didn't know each other. But yet, buried in one of their volumes is the report 
from the people, the affidavits from the people who worked at the Dobbs House Cafe. They were both in there two days before the assassination having breakfast. So how can you depend on this report? I know you believe Oswald killed Tippett but didn't shoot Kennedy. But I have to ask about Jack Ruby in Havana. Do you believe Jack Ruby was in Havana when uh, Louis McWillie and others saw him oh, there? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. I have no doubt about it. I have no doubt about it. As a matter of fact, that's another thing. The Warren Commission said that Ruby was not mob-connected. Well, he might not have been a member of the mafia, okay? But he was definitely connected. And if you, you know, there's a great book on this by David Scheim. I, I don't know if you interviewed Scheim. I have, yeah. He, yeah, he, uh, Scheim is... Um, it's called Contract Scheim on America. Book, Contract on America. And he outlines all these mafia connections to Ruby. And also, if you go to the uh, House Select Committee assassination report, the, the 11 volumes, you'll find a tremendous amount of documentation in those reports about the people that Ruby knew. So as an example, you know, uh, I just, let me just throw out a couple here for you, just to give you an example. One of the people that uh, Ruby knew was Barney Baker. And uh, Robert Kennedy described Baker as uh, Jimmy Hoffa's roving emissary of violence. And uh, Baker, I should say Ruby called uh, Baker at home on several occasions. This would be like saying me saying to you right now, you know, uh, over the weekend, I called Tony Soprano at home to see how his Thanksgiving was. You'd be saying, what? You called Tony Soprano? Yeah, you notice you, you notice mob mobster. He was calling this guy at home. He uh, he knew Joseph Campisi, another mob connected individual. He knew Frank Chavez from the Teamsters Union, another another uh, convicted a guy that was arrested for attempted murder and uh, a number of other crimes. Joseph Savello, he was close friends with Joseph Savello, the mob boss of, uh, of, uh, of Dallas, okay? He knew um, Russell Matthews. The FBI described Matthews as a burglar, armed robber, drug pusher, murderer, arrested more than 50 times in Dallas, linked to Traficante and uh, Camp Pesey. Good friend of Jack Ruby. Uh, James Henry Dolan, arrest records in seven states for race track swindle, arson, possession of burglary tools. Dolan was a Dallas representative of the American Guild of Variety Artists. He produced a musical with Ruby. Met with Ruby in Dallas two months before the assassination. I mean, it just goes on and goes on and goes on. He's in, he's involved with all these people. Had their home phone numbers. Was making all kinds of calls to these people during, prior to the assassination and right after the assassination. So for the Warren Commission to make the statement, you know, he's not really connected to organized crime. Uh, it's just Another absolute obfuscation of the facts. You know, they don't want to, they did not want to get in down the road. Was the mafia potentially involved in this hit? You know, uh, 
the FBI was looking into this initially on the first day. And then Hoover called a halt to it all by the end of the first day. He said, we've got our man. We've got Oswald. Don't look any further. Warren Commission never raised any questions about this. They did not know, as an example, that in September of 1962, Carlos Marcello, the mob boss in New Orleans, made a death threat against Kennedy. They did not know that Trapicante in September 1962 made a death threat against Kennedy. They did not know. Uh, they did not know that Jimmy Hoffa made a death threat to kill Robert Kennedy and told a guy by the name of Parton, P-A-R-T-I-N, who was a Teamster official, Parton took a lie detector and passed uh, and revealed that Hoffa was talking about killing Robert Kennedy. So they didn't know about any of this. You know, the Warren Commission didn't know about the... uh, CIA mafia attempts. Yeah, well, Alan Dulles knew, but he just never told it to anybody. That's why. Because they they were trying to protect, trying to protect the CIA. uh, Well, that's the potential involvement. That's the only reason that Hoover had Gerald Ford on the commission feeding him information is that he saw Alan Dulles was on the panel and realized that the CIA is going to push a lot of. It's you got to look at these agencies kind of they're obviously their own thing, but they're really looking about their credibility in the eyes of where they're going to get their money from. So if you look at Alan Dulles being charged of the CIA, head of the Warren Commission, Hoover doesn't have an FBI guy on the Warren Commission. Then he's got Gerald Ford, which is now known that he was feeding them information. He's also in charge of moving the back wound up six inches. But it was only because that if Alan Dulles starts swaying to see what the FBI is up to, Gerald Ford can let Hoover know and Hoover can sanitize some files or put them in his little desk that didn't. I mean, he had a little desk that when he died, all these files came out that were stuck in his desk that weren't supposed to be in there. It was all blackmail stuff. But that's the main thing. But you're getting a lot of your information from the HSCA um, investigation because I believe in there on the National Archives website, it says that Carlos Marcello had the motives and means. Jimmy Hoffa had the motives and means. And then Santos Traficante had the motives and means. But none of them, I think they said, was evidence to link them to the assassination, which I think the HSCA research is good. I would recommend it. But I also have to kind of bring up the point that Blakey was in charge of the HSCA. He is responsible for RICO and all the organized crime stuff. So he might have a bias to pointing more towards the organized crime things. I definitely think this is more of a military industrial complex thing. Well, let, let me tell you one thing that if, if we talk about over time, I wrote this book about six, seven years ago. And at that time, I would say that I thought that the assassination was driven by the mob with support from rogue elements in the CIA. I'm now of the conclusion, after this period of time, that I believe that the assassination was driven by rogue elements of the CIA, and that the only help that they got from the mob was Jack Ruby. Somebody had to get in and kill Oswald. You couldn't allow this guy to go to trial. See, that's where I think Dallas police came in. I think Dallas police connections with Jack Ruby, I realized, like I bring it back to their conviction rates. 
hey, man, we got this guy. If this goes to trial, we're screwed about how much evidence we labeled on the guy. And then Jack Ruby comes in and cleans up the job. Yeah, and, and he would have been the only guy. To, and look, if you if you read the testimony from Joseph Sabello, who was the mob boss in Dallas, he said, if, if you know, Jack Ruby, they knew Jack Ruby would be a guy that be, would be able to do this job because he had the access to the basement. The key point here simply is, there's an interesting thing. I was talking to Blakey uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer. And Blakey said to me, on the afternoon of the assassination, Jack Ruby went to visit his sister. And during that afternoon, he got a phone call. And right after the phone call, he threw up. Blakey said to me, he believes that phone call was the order to kill Oswald. And, you know, that kind of makes sense. You know, um, I think that Ruby, and that starts him down the road. Friday night, he's already in there in the Dallas police station. And he lied about the fact that he was carrying a gun. He told the Warren Commission, I wasn't carrying a gun Friday night. But he was. And then go back to one other thing. The interesting thing is Leon Yuba and Bert Griffith were the two Warren Commission attorneys who were investigating Jack Ruby. Spent a lot of time on Ruby. And when Warren went to Washington, uh, not, excuse me, when Warren went to Dallas to question Jack Ruby in the Dallas jail, he didn't take Griffin, and he didn't take Yuba. Major insult to the two of them. He took all Inspector and Gerald Ford. And if you read Ruby's testimony, it's very interesting. It's about 30-some-odd pages long. At least seven times, Ruby says to Earl Warren, you've got to take me to Washington. I can't tell you what happened unless I'm out of this jail. In effect, is what he's saying. I can't speak here. I'm in danger here. You've got to take me with you to Washington, and I can tell you the whole story. Warren refused. Seven times Ruby asked him. I mean, you, you got to keep in mind, Ruby walked into that jail, that Dallas police station, and killed Oswald. You don't think somebody could have gone in and killed Ruby? You don't think he was afraid of that? And so he's telling them, you need to, Warren could have, look, even if Ruby had nothing to say, even if it was a ruse, what Warren could have done at that point in time was just proven Ruby knew nothing. There was no conspiracy. He just went in and shot Oswald. But he didn't do it. Because once again, I think he was afraid Ruby was going to tell them something that would lead to a conspiracy, and they wanted to avoid a conspiracy at all costs. That's all the way through this report, through the entire 26 volumes. Can I get your opinion on Burt Griffin? I mean, he uh, put the telephone calls of Jack Ruby in the in his investigation, he published that in his book, but he also believes Lone Nut. 
he doesn't believe anything conspiracy related when it comes to Jack Ruby. I mean, that's a little bit contradictory, right? If there's evidence to support that the official conclusion that Jack Ruby didn't have any mob connections, but then he publishes his telephone calls where he's calling Karen Carlin and all these other people that are obviously more underworldy figures. Karen Carlin's a stripper at his club, but her statements even doesn't make sense if you read her testimony. Well, Bob Blakey, who was very good friends with Griffith, asked me to send my book, The Bird Griffith, which I did. And then Griffith sent me a list of, the only thing I can call him is he sent me a list of interrogatories. All these questions on why I had the views that I had, which I answered in detail. And all that discussion is on my website, if anybody wants to take a look at it. And what you find when you talk to Griffith is no matter what you're going to say, he's going to stay with the original conclusion. You're not going to change his mind. No matter what you say, no matter what evidence you present, he's going to stay with that conclusion. He's not, you know, look, he's up in his late 80s right now. He was a major member of the Warren Commission. And he's he's got too much invested in that conclusion. It's kind of very difficult for him to come out now and say, you know, uh, oh, gee, we were mistaken. The whole thing was wrong. I don't think a lot of these people are going to do that. They're going to stay with it. And, you know, what, what's interesting is he testified. What was very interesting is he testified before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And in part of his testimony, he actually hints at that Oswald could have been manipulated by other people in New Orleans. Anti-Castro Cubans could have manipulated him and used his pro-Marxist, pro-Castro feelings against him to get him into a plot to kill the president. He actually entertains this idea in his testimony, but you can't budge him beyond that. No matter what you say, no matter what evidence you give him, he's just not going to back off. Even with even like Johnson making statements after the assassination saying he never believed a lone nut, he believed it was like a Cuban or something like that that took out Kennedy. Everyone made statements afterwards of their dissent from the official narrative. Well, you know, look, most of the people who issued the Warren report didn't believe it. Even Lyndon Johnson didn't believe it. I mean, um, Johnson said, you know, in, in testimony, not in testimony, but in recorded phone calls, uh, I've never believed a single bullet theory. If you don't believe the single bullet theory, you're saying there's a second shooter. Nobody believed this report. You know, most of them didn't believe this. The, uh, the two hail Boggs didn't believe it. Um, they just uh, rejected the report. And even even there was some indication in some of Ford's papers that he ultimately rejected the report. Now, whether you can rely on that or not, I don't know. Can we talk about Tippett? No, yeah, we sure can. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you were gonna say no. It's like, damn, I was like, I was hoping no, no, we could no, talk no, I'm about sorry. that. I, I I I thought you said 
did we talk about Tippett? No, we didn't, but let's go I, ahead and do it. There's a, there's a couple things I've, I mean, obviously I've kind of stayed away from the Tippett stuff uh, just because it just seems very, very confusing. But I, what about the narcotic stuff that he was involved in? Do you believe any of that? I keep seeing that pop up whenever you start looking at him. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, I, I, I tell you what, the only thing that I know about Tippett, I, and I did a chapter on this in the book. And of course, there's all these problems with the chain of evidence on the bullets and so on. There are all those problems are definitely in there. Okay. The real problem for me is what was Tippett doing that day? The, the most interesting thing of all to me, and I think a very telling thing, was when he stopped Oswald, he spoke to Oswald through the vent window on the car. Now, I don't know if you're, you're, you're a pretty young guy, but uh, maybe, maybe you remember automobiles used to have vent windows? Yeah, I know that, and I know yeah, the ones used to crank window. the sucker, too. Yeah, well, well you had, you'd have a little uh, lock you push it. it out. You'd yeah, you'd push it out. Yeah, you'd push it out. The patrol car window is up. He talks to him through the vent window. Now, you tell me, what cop in his right mind would make a stop potentially on somebody who was an assassin and talk to him through the vent window? Now, I talked to a couple of New York City cops and L.A. cops. The New York City cops said he was totally nuts if that's what he did. The L.A. cops that I, I was talking to, one of them said the guy was trying to commit suicide if he talked to him through the vent window. All, all the evidence indicates he talked to him through the vent window. Now, that says to me he didn't want Oswald to reach into the car, open the car door, and get in, giving me some feeling that Tippett was there to pick this guy up and give him a ride or do something to help him out. Tippett was doing a favor for somebody. Now, let's go back to Ruby again. Ruby knew the sister, Bertha Cheek. Her sister was Earlene Roberts, the, the woman who was managing the rooming house where. Oswald was staying. So Ruby could have known of Oswald being in that house. He knew this Bertha Cheek. As a matter of fact, he met with her a week before the assassination. The Warren Commission was very suspicious of Bertha Cheek. If you look at her questioning and testimony, it runs well over 100 pages. I mean, they were very interested in what she had to say. She didn't give him a whole lot of information, but she knew Jack Ruby, and her sister ran the rooming house where Oswald was. Another connection. Ruby knew Calvin Owens, Sergeant Calvin Owens, who was Tippett's superior on the Dallas Police Department. He knew Owens for over 10 years. So he was in there right around Tippett. And it could be that maybe he had Tippett. There was something about picking Oswald up, helping Oswald out, 
that broad tippet to where he was that day. He was supposed to be doing something for somebody. The problem was, on the way to where he's going, he's listening to the Dallas police radio. And what does he hear? The president of the United States is shot in Dealey Plaza. By now, by the time he gets to uh, pick Oswald up or stop Oswald, he knows the president's dead. Cops are streetwise. They have to be. They wouldn't survive otherwise. It starts putting two and two together. What am I doing? Am I getting involved in something I don't want to get involved in? Am I helping somebody out that's connected to this assassination in downtown Dallas? And so when he stops, he doesn't give Oswald any way to get into the car. The car door's locked, the window's up, he talks through him to the vent window. And he starts to ask uncomfortable questions for Oswald. Oswald knows the game is up. Tippett doesn't get satisfactory answers, he gets out of the car. What does Oswald do? Shoots him three times. Tippett's down on the ground, no longer a threat. Oswald starts to trot away, stops, comes back, aims directly at Tippett's head and shoots him in the head, kills him instantly. Why did he do that? Because Tippett knew who he was? Wanted to make sure Tippett wasn't going to talk, wasn't going to be able to identify him. And so basically, I think there's a connection between these two guys. And if you look at the behavior of Tippett before that shooting occurred, people saw him driving up and down the area, looking up and down the side streets and all. He was parked in a Glocko gas station right by the Houston Viaduct where Oswald would have come across in the bus. And basically, He's parked in the station. He's seen by five people, all of whom knew him personally. So there was no mistake that it was J.D. Tippett. All of a sudden, he pulls out of the station at a uh, high rate of speed. Then he's over at the uh, top 10 record store making a phone call, kind of shoves people out of the way when he comes into the store, gets on the phone, waits for about maybe seven or eight rings. Nobody answers. He's puts the phone back down and leaves, drives off at a high rate of speed. There's a uh, an insurance salesman, I forget his name at the moment. He's driving along in the area. All of a sudden, Tippett comes up, doesn't put the light on behind him to stop him, cuts in front of him, cuts him off, and forces him to the side. Gets out of the car, runs over to the car, looks in the back of the car, never said a word, and then got back in his car and left. The guy was able to read his name tag, Tippett. Why all the strange behavior? What was he doing? It seemed to me that he was involved in some aspect of either giving Oswald a ride, or I don't believe he was there to kill Oswald. But you got to really think about this whole thing very in, in a way that was there some plot to take Oswald out. Look, within two and a half minutes of the assassination, 
Dallas police officer Marion Berry is in the book depository with his gun in Oswald's stomach. Until Roy truly yells, hey, 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 the guy works here. No problem. Then, no more than 45 minutes later, no more than 40 minutes later, a second police officer is stopping Oswald. Where does he stop him? In a residential area. Why would you stop a guy in a residential area if you're looking for a presidential assassin? Why, why would he be driving in a residential area looking for an assassin? And the interesting thing about the whole thing to me was this. Right after I went to the place where Oswald was shot, uh, well, Tippett was shot, I should say. Right after I went there, I decided I'm going to go visit Jack Ruby's apartment. Jack Ruby's apartment was three-tenths of a mile away in the same direction Oswald was walking. I mean, I find that all these connections are there. All these little pieces of data are there. Problem is, we don't have enough information to fully connect everything. But what, what bothers me the most, and never sat right with me, Tippett talking to this guy through the vent window. Why would he do that? So I do think that um, Oswald killed him. I don't think there's any doubt of that. There's too many witnesses who saw it happen. And I and and even the way that he did it, the, the, the HSCA described the final hit as a coup de grace, you know, a uh, mob assassination. Shot him right through the head. Make sure he's dead. So I, other than that, I really can't say anything other than that. I think Tippett was involved. He was asked to do something with Oswald. His behavior was extraordinarily strange that day. And one, a couple of the police officers that, that I spoke to said his behavior indicated he was dirty, was their terminology. So I, that's, a, that's the best I can, I can do for you on the tippet killing. I'm going to ask you a final question, but it's just after 60 years. I mean, do you ever do you think some answers are going to come out? I don't know if you saw any of the stuff that was trending, obviously the Paul Landis story, but do you expect anything different coming out? Documents, releases, any hopeful for, okay. You know, you know what I think? I think, as I said to you, I think the CIA, rogue elements of the CIA directed this operation. But a while back, when I was talking to Bob Blakey again, who was badly deceived by the uh, CIA when Joannides uh, took over the liaison between the CIA and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Blakey said to me, there isn't going to be any documents. Most likely, this stuff was never written down. And if it was written down, it's been long destroyed. You're not going to get anything. Now, the only hope that we have is that we might get more information about Joannides. But I got news for you. Biden wiped his hands of forcing the CIA to put any more of this information out there. It's now up to the agencies. 
he's given the agency's permission to take control over any further document release. I mean, you got to really wonder. I mean, you know, this is Trump did the same thing. Every single president that's been in there has done the same thing. The only guy who really tried to get the documents, but um, Jimmy Carter, the CIA was not going to give it to him, was Nixon. I was about to say Jimmy Carter. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think you're gonna I don't think anything further is going to come out. I think Landis may be the last big piece of information we're going to get. Um, Disappointing. Yeah, it's. I. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be in my lifetime. So I think it's not. It might be later down the road. I think somebody's got secrets somewhere still locked up. But I don't know. I keep seeing witnesses that keeps like 60th anniversary happened. Witnesses came forward. They agree with the official narrative, but it was just like more people were coming forward, whether it's real or not. Um, it's just interesting that the media picked up the Paul Landis story and started running that. I was like, wow, that's first time, even if it, you know, a lot of people don't agree with it. It's the first time they've ever went against something that wasn't the official narrative. Well, you got to ask yourself, what, what would be his, what, why, what would he get out of, uh, making this story up? And I think he's got good reasons. You know, he was, he was traumatized by the assassination. He quit the job six months later said he couldn't do it anymore. All of that is quite understandable. And, um, you know, what he says, and I'm telling you, I go back to this uh, in my book, uh, which let me mention it was, he was expendable. Um, in, in, in the book, I mentioned that um, in, in chapter five, where I, where I spent some time on the medical data, I have a section, the stretcher puzzle. Every person who was involved with that stretcher that treated Connolly testified there was no bullet on the stretcher. You know, you're talking about 20 to 30 people. How can they all be wrong? I don't know. How could there be so many? How can there be so many anomalies in the assassination? That's what I want to know. Well, yeah. Well, you, you have anomalies when you got a bad theory. That's a good point. That, that, you know, it's like uh, Ptolemy, when he had the uh, universe, the Earth was the center of the universe, and he consistently was trying to make mathematical adjustments to keep the Earth at the center. It broke down. The anomalies broke it down. You know, Copernicus comes along, and he now gives you a new explanation. Well, we're still looking for our Copernicus here, but the key point is the Warren report is a broken theory. There are too many anomalies and it can't explain the anomalies. And when you can't explain the anomalies, your theory is no good. Plain and simple. Well, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show again. Is there a place where people can find your links? Do you have any more than just he was expendable? Oh yeah, they, they can get it at Barnes & Noble. They can get it on Amazon. Uh, they can get it on any of the major uh, sites where you would purchase books. Okay. Well, Mr. Keller, I'll link those in the description and I appreciate the time. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast.